Matt's going to read the Bible for us, so I'm going to invite you guys to get um, your Bibles out. Revelation chapter 2, chapter 12, 12 to 17. Chapter 2. 2, sorry. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of them hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Our Father God, we uh, thank you and reflect as we did last night on your Son, our Lord Jesus, who came to preach uh, this very earthy thing that he did, but uh, a profoundly spiritual thing to, uh, to share truth uh, and to speak it plainly. We thank you that we have truth before us now. Uh, we pray for Toby as he comes to preach, uh, to share that truth, to engage in that spiritual battle as we understand it. Uh, We pray that you'll help him to speak clearly uh, and powerfully and helpfully. We pray uh, for your spirit to be at work in us to hear and respond. Amen. Well, it's been great to uh, be with you the last couple of days and uh, really appreciate the encouragement some of you have given me. Uh, I'm kind of, even as I'm sitting over there, I feel my heart beating. I kind of am intimidated preaching to this room. And so I'm glad that some of you found this, these series of talks helpful. Um, I was talking to Mikey, uh, Mikey just last week and uh, we're commiserating about how hard church planning is. Um, I, a number of years ago, I did uh, some Ironman distance triathlons, which for those of you who don't know, it's a 3.6-kilometre swim, 180-kilometre bike ride, and then you finish that off with a 40 two-kilometre run right at the end of it. And church planning by far is the hardest thing I've ever done. Ironman has nothing on it at all. And so I want to encourage you, if that's where you're at, uh, hopefully these talks have been encouraging for you, particularly uh, if, uh, if you're doing it tough right now. I think we all are. And I think that's why it's just so great to get in the same room, remind one another that there are people who understand and get what you're going through and that it really is worth it. Let me pray, and then we're going to have a look at the third letter uh, in this uh, that Jesus sends to the churches. Oh God, would you open our eyes to behold marvellous things in your word? Open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us right now. Show us ourselves. Show us the things that we're afraid of, the areas we are compromising in. Show us our Saviour, and may we love him above all things. Deal with us in your grace and bring rule, reformation, and revival to your church in our day. But begin here, this very moment, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, at the end of last year, I read an article on a website called the the Cooperian Commentary. I don't know if anyone's seen that website. I, this is the only thing I've read on it. I don't know whether it's a good website or not. But I read this article about Kent Dobson's uh, retirement uh, from as the successor. He, he's the successor of Rob Bell. Mars Hill Bible Church. Where is that church? Not Seattle. It's the other one. Grand Michigan, Grand Rapids. You know, Rob Bell, uh, uh, Love Wins. Anyway, his successor... Uh, Kent Dobson, he announced his retirement in a sermon at the end of last year. And in the sermon, he speaks about how when he first came to Mars Hill, he was attracted by the vision of 
you know, Acts chapter 17, cultural engagement, quoting the poets of the day, not changing the message of Jesus, but adapting it uh, and using more relevant packaging. And he goes on to share that that's what he wanted, the same gospel, but delivered in a hip way. I quote him, specifically, he wanted a cool church with cooler shoes than the guys down the road. However, over time, Dobson said that not only did he begin to question the packaging of traditional church, but also the message of the gospel. And he says this, I've always been and still am drawn to the very edges of religion and faith and God. I've said a few times that I don't even know I don't even know if we know what we mean by God anymore. That's the edges of faith. faith. That's what pulls me. I'm not really drawn to the center. I'm not drawn to the orthodox or the mainstream or the status quo. I'm always wandering out to the edge and beyond. And to his church, he kind of paints himself as this modern-day Magellan, Magellan, ready to explore the great spiritual unknown, a romantic vagabond motivated by nothing but curiosity and bravery. He's boldly setting his sails towards the choppy waters which stand between what is and what could be. Dobson says he's on a journey. They love these words, don't they? I'm, I'm on a journey. You know, I'm, I'm, just, you know, I'm just exploring. Uh, he's on a journey. started one place which is leading to another. But in reality, he's been where he has always been. His self-professed goal was always to be the cool pastor with the cool shoes. It's not that he's journeying away from the center of faith. He stayed in the center of the moral zeitgeist. And Christianity, the moral zeitgeist, is moving further and further and further away from Christianity. And it's very clear that he is staying put in the middle of the moral zeitgeist. He's not st- he hasn't been on a journey. He's this coward staying right in the center of where society is, paralyzed with fear. He's not moving forward to the unknown. He's sitting perfectly safe in the cozy space where Oprah is queen, tolerance is the law, and anyone with a firm opinion on just about anything is suspect. It can be, though, very difficult to stay true to Jesus in our world. Everywhere there's temptation to compromise. Everywhere to sell out, stop being light in a dark world. On a personal note, I showed you those pictures from the newspapers uh, from just before we planted. That was in pre-launch phase. And I haven't once spoken homosexuality from the pulpit in that time. It's very easy to sell out and let society dictate what you're going to preach on. And I'm terrified about speaking on it. It can be very easy to be ashamed of what we believe. We often apologize for what we believe rather than saying, this is the greatest thing in the world and you're missing out. We kind of make excuses. We're kind of shy. We kind of, we need a we need to come up with good apologetic answers because we're ashamed of what we believe. Often we, don't, uh, often we judge God's word by how it makes us feel rather than allowing it to inform how we should feel. We sing with Brooke Fraser, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. But when we come to the scriptures and something doesn't seem to be breaking God's heart that's breaking ours, we yell at him, we scream at him. And we get angry. We become PR-friendly churches. And we avoid the parts of the Bible that might offend people. In the desire to be relevant, we edit the gospel so that sin becomes dysfunctional behavior. Salvation becomes finding self-esteem and wholeness. Jesus becomes an example of living well. And sermons become advice about how to have a happy marriage, how to raise nice kids, but not how to get right with God, our deepest, most fundamental need. That's not the gospel, though, is it? Sin means that you and I, we are rebels against the holy God under his judgment. Salvation means he had to die to turn aside God's righteous anger so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus is not just our example, but the only way men and women have any hope 
of escaping judgment. And church is the gathering of God's saved people, stirring one another up to love Jesus and not compromise. Here's the thing, Christianity, it doesn't thrive by giving people what they already have. It thrives by offering our world what it doesn't have, the word of God and salvation through Jesus Christ. If you want to be relevant, you offer our world what it doesn't have. I've been tempted over the years, you know, I need to be relevant, need to fit in. And I start watering down the gospel. No wonder people aren't interested. I think the defining mark of our day is this thing, called apathyism. I did my fourth year project on it at Moore College. I thought I coined a word and then I googled it and I'm like, darn, someone else wrote about it a bit earlier than I did. Apathyism. Uh, It's uh, either apathetic theism or apathetic atheism. doesn't really matter what you believe, you just don't really care. You're apathetic in whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God. And I think it's not that people don't believe in God today, It's simply that they don't care. Why don't they care? Because they don't believe Jesus offers them anything worth caring about. Why? Because we haven't preached clearly enough enough exclusive claims. They don't know that he is different. They don't know that he is offering something that they cannot cannot have anywhere else. John Dixon, a couple of years ago, he had an article published in the Gospel Coalition. It's a very helpful article. I can't remember what it's called, Uh, but this is what he says. He says, it's not the church's job to make the gospel relevant, to fit into our culture with what our culture thinks. Our task is to show the Bible's relevance. He says, cultures are constantly changing, in some respects improving, in some respects getting worse, but they're always in flux. If the Bible affirmed what every passing culture believed, that would surely reveal, would it not? that it is not a body of wisdom for every culture through all time. Imagine, however, there was a book containing eternal wisdom for all cultures. What should we expect to find? We would discover that it is always at odds with every culture at some point for culture, culture is in flux, sometimes coinciding with the truth and sometimes departing from it. He says the true relevance of the gospel is found in its studied irrelevant to any particular culture. You want to know the relevance of the gospel. You see how irrelevant it seems to people, how it confronts them, how it challenges them, how it disturbs them. That is the enduring relevance of our gospel. In the past couple of days, we've been hearing Jesus' letter that he sent to the seven churches around Asia. And we've seen that each of these churches is facing some kind of difficulty. The first was believing the truth and doing all the right things, but they were loveless. The second church was faithful, but they were fearful. And Jesus tells them to fearlessly endure and wait on their loving God who has all power and will give them the crown of life. Today we hear Jesus warn a church that is in danger of selling out to the culture around them. And these three sermons, they give us three marks of a healthy church. Deep love, that's Ephesus. Fearless endurance, that's Jesus' message to Smyrna. And uncompromising truth, that's what he urges this church in Pergamon to have. You can listen to the rest of the series on the Vine Church Uh, website if you want to hear the rest. But look down with me at verse 12. Lord Jesus Christ says, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Once again, Jesus reminds the church who he is in a way that it speaks clearly to their situation. To loveless Ephesus, he says, I walk among the lampstands. You're going to not love each other. I'm going to take away your lampstand." To fearful Smyrna, he says, remember that I am the first and the last, that I bracket your life, that nothing happens apart from my, my loving will for you. And to the compromising Pergamum, he says, these are the words who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. The word of God is this sharp, double-edged sword. That's what the Lord Jesus holds, isn't it? 
God's word cleaves through the hard-shelled souls of humanity like a hot knife through butter. His word can penetrate the hearts of the greatest sinners of our age. I mean, it did for you, didn't it? That's how powerful his word is. I stand amazed that I'm a Christian sometimes. I know how wicked and sinful and tempted my own heart is. And I'm just like, how did you get me, God? His word is a sharp, double-edged sword which slayed me, which cut me open, which left me defenseless and left me longing for the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this church needs to know. And then he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, verse 13. Again, we see his love and compassion. He just knows his church. He knows your church. And he says, you know what? I know how hard it is to live where you live. Satan not only inhabited Pergamum, he ruled it. It wasn't just his home. It was his throne. And, uh, and as we heard last night, Satan and his army, they have been overthrown. And yet despite that, the powers of darkness continue to contest every inch of their territory. The kingdom of Satan retreats only as the kingdom of God advances, not through exorcisms, not through holy water, not through crucifixes, but as Christian people take up this double-edged sword and wield it on the hearts of the people, causing them to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. But in Pergamum, Satan still holds almost undisputed sway. It is his throne. And yet, Jesus says, Verse 13, you remain true to my name. Satan is ruling in your city and yet you hold true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Like Smyrna, this church had endured fearlessly through outbreaks of persecution and they remained true to Jesus. They didn't renounce their faith even when Antipas was being put to the sword. Pergamon was not as wealthy as Ephesus or Smyrna, but it was the political capital of all of Asia. And there the Roman governor, that's where he ruled, and he was given the right of the sword, the Eos Gladi. I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, but the right of the sword, which meant that he had the power over life and death, especially to enforce the worship of the emperor. And Jesus says, this governor, he has already taken up his legal rights. And the sword fell on Jesus' dear servant Antipas. Do you hear that? Do you hear Jesus own his people there? My servant, my faithful witness. If you stay true to him, that's what you are. You belong to him, and he will own you. Incredibly comforting, isn't it? And Jesus says he's taken up his legal right, and Antipas, we're not too sure sure what happened to him, but we do know that later Christians faced all kinds of barbaric deaths, and yet they didn't renounce their faith. They remained true to Jesus. They faced death without courage. They weren't different, different from you and I. They weren't some super strong Christians who had some kind of super, super spiritual strength. They were just ordinary people like you and I who believed that it wasn't the end, that Jesus was seated on the throne and that he really did love them. And so they went to their deaths absolutely fearless because they were convicted. They had this vivid awareness of those things. And yet, although Jesus was pleased with how they had the courage to stand for him, he had a few things against him. Verse 14, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. When the sword of Rome was being wielded, the church refused to renounce Jesus. But now a more subtle temptation comes their way. It's as though Satan hasn't succeeded in the full frontal assault on the church. They were courageous, they stood true to Jesus, and so he employs a different tactic, doesn't he? If intimidation doesn't work, he goes for temptation. 
He goes stealth mode. While Antipas refuses Satan at the front door, there are some in the church who are letting Satan in through the back door. And it's tragic, isn't it? And somehow, for some reason, the rest of the church, they tolerate this. It was only a few involved, and yet the whole church was in danger now because Satan was in their church using false teaching to destroy them. What is the teaching of Balaam? We find out that in the surprisingly relevant Old Testament book Numbers. I think it's one of the funniest stories in the entire Bible, isn't it? Balaam, uh, he's like this professional spiritualist who has the power to bless and curse people. And Balak uh, hires him as kind of a spiritual hitman. Balak is one of the Moabites in the land. The Israelites come in. He's terrified what they're going to do to him. So he hires this spiritual hitman, Balaam, to come and curse God's people. But Balaam can't do it. You can't curse a people whom God has chosen to bless. You remember God's promise to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You can't curse God's people. And Balaam finally realizes that. And so the frontal assault on God's people fails. But Balaam isn't deterred, is he? He goes stealth mode. He goes through the back door. He says to Balak, look, I can't curse them, but maybe I could teach you to get them to curse themselves. Here's what you should do. Get all your beautiful young Moabite women to cook up a barbecue to your gods and afterwards get them to hook up with the men after dinner. Perfect plan. Steak followed by sex. What man could resist? It's a perfect plan and it works. Israel curses themselves by eating food sacrificed to idols and sleeping with foreign women. And they end up doing that and God sends a plague of judgment over all Israel. And ever since, Balaam has become the byword in the rest of the Bible for the kind of false teaching which lures God's people into compromise. And Jesus says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Guys, what the heck is going on? This small church, they've resisted the enemy at the front door, but others are letting him in through the back door. They lived in a city where they'd grown up, going to the various temples, eating food, sacrificed to idols, visiting, uh, enjoying the feast, visiting the prostitutes in the temples there, and now they'd started following Jesus. And they knew he was the Lord of life, and they refused to, to renounce him, even when it was going to cost them their life. But slowly over time, compromise set in for some of these Christians. And they were seduced by the moral zeitgeist of Pergamon. They were seduced into idolatry and immorality. As C.S. Lewis says, the safest place to hell is the gradual one, the road of small but successive compromise. No doubt they didn't want to be seen as irrelevant, disconnected from the rest of society. They wanted to be fully engaged members. And so they made rationalizations. Look, I've got to go along to the pagan feast. When my workmates are going out to the strip club, I can't not go with them. That's what some of your people are going through right now. If I don't go, I'll, I'll lose this business opportunity. That's where they're at. They're like, look, I've got to keep the authorities off our backs. If we, if we look, we just participate in these pagan... Th- I don't believe any of it. I'll, I'll just partake in it. And while I'm there, I'll be... And while I'm there, you know, I've been so faithful to Jesus right now. I've been risking my life. I'll just relieve some of the tension by visiting this prostitute. I used to do it. It didn't kill me. God didn't smite me. I'm covered by grace. It's all right. I think as church planners, we can make the same rationalizations for sin, can't we? We can make small compromises with alcohol. My life is just so stressful right now. I just need to unwind. I'm off alcohol at the moment for that reason. 
Last year, it was such a stressful period of time. I, I grew up, my dad would have a beer on Saturday afternoon after he'd mow the lawn. You know, weekends, he'd have one or two beers. And that's kind of went into my marriage. That's kind of what we did. Sat Friday night, Saturday night, have a beer, glass of wine. And over the last year, it's like I haven't been able to relax in the evenings without a glass of wine. And I'm making small compromises. As church planners, it's so easy to make rationalizations. It trips us into looking at pornography. We make small rationalizations with our money. Don't you realize the sacrifices I'm making for this church? I deserve to have this, to enjoy this particular comfort, to go on this holiday. I'm working harder than anyone else here. And so we make small compromises on the way to hell. And that's what this church are at. They indulge in sexual immorality and they say, you know what, I'm under grace, I'm not narrow-minded. Sure, they made rationalizations. This is the first century already. We've got to move past all that ancient sexual morality. You know? You've got to see the trajectory of the biblical sex ethic, which is moving us towards freedom and love. You know, the Bible is regressive. That was kind of like 30 years ago. We've moved on from that moment. And, you know, and, you know if I'm going to tell my neighbors about Jesus, I've got to show them that it's not going to require much change in their life. It's really going to be a good life being a Christian. I can't be that different. I can't offend people. I can't show them that it's, it's actually bearing a cross being a Christian. And... And here we see that Satan, if he can't intimidate us, in reality, he very rarely intimidates us. Very rarely a church dies because of persecution. If he can't intimidate us, he tempts us, and it's tragic. There's no more confused message that you and I could give a lost and dying world than to live in sin at the same time as calling people to repent from their sins. God will not use a compromised life to reach a compromised world. We call it being relevant, but it's sin. It's compromise. Our message is repentance, not acceptance. We do not accept the immorality of our world. We call the world to repent and trust in the all-glorious, all-satisfying Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, it's a sword. It's not a lammy. Any of you grew up with a lammy? I love my lammy. I slept on my lammy. It kept me nice and, nice and warm at night. The gospel is a sword. It challenges. You know, it's the liberalism of the 19th century that killed the church. Charles Spurgeon, he stood firm against the new theology. And as Arnold Dallymord uh, records him saying, page 214, where are we? This is what... This is what happens. Spurgeon, I'll, I'll read some more of this uh, toward the end. But um, in Spurgeon's day, he stood firm against, and you know, many people just thought he was fighting against 10,000 swords that weren't really there. And, and no one really saw the trajectory of the new liberalism. And Dallymore, at the end of his chapter on Spurgeon's earnestly contending for the faith, says this, with the passing of years, he has been proven entirely correct. As he foretold, with the denial of scriptures, church attendance began to fall. Prayer meetings became places of a mere few till they were dropped altogether. And the miracle of life, transformed by the grace of God, was witnessed less and less, if at all. Church after church in city, town and hamlet gradually died out. Throughout England, one could see what had once been a church, now used as a shop or a garage, or could see where one had formerly stood, but has since been torn down. All through compromise. And so Jesus says, verse 16, Repent. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is concerned that these people in their church have sold out who have sold out, remain unchallenged. The majority haven't sold out. And yet they haven't challenged those in their church who have sold out. 
Here we see how loving it is, how unloving it is to wield, not to wield the sword of truth in our churches. What an unloving thing to allow your brothers and sisters to go on sinning, placing themselves and their salvation in jeopardy. Repent, Jesus says. Challenge them graciously, humbly. Don't you love each other? How can you allow your brothers and sisters to cling to Christ with one hand and the pleasures of this world with another? You must repent and call out their compromise. Otherwise, verse 16, I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That sounds terrifying. Jesus' word, it brings both judgment and blessing. Simultaneously, it's threatening and promising. Now, notice that the sword is the sword of his mouth. That's what he uses to fight. That's what he will use to judge. He doesn't need anything else but the truth to expose our compromise and sin and send us to hell. That's all he needs to judge us. On Judgment Day, the sword is a metaphor for the true and right judgments that his word will make. This is all he needs. His word is the means by which our people will be saved. And if we refuse to use that word to call them to repentance, one day it will be the means by which they are thrown in hell. Don't you love them? Call out compromise. Now what I'd like to do with the rest of my time is uh, just spend a little bit of time drawing out some implications of this letter. And then I'm going to conclude with Jesus' promises right at the end of the passage. I've got five implications. I don't think I'm going to get to my fifth one. I'd love to, but I don't think I have time. First implication. Here's first implication. The greatest threat to your church is not the one that comes from the outside, but the one that comes from the inside. That's my experience. Uh, John Bunyan, who was a man who knew a thing or two about persecution, right? He says, God's people are like bells. The harder they are hit, the better they sound. (laughs) And that's what suffering will do to you. It made us a better church in the first couple of years, having that experience of being persecuted in the newspapers. It made us more prayerful. It made us more conscious of the language we use in our church. Persecution of the early days, you know, it does nothing for it did nothing for us apart from rally God's people to the seriousness of the task we have ahead. Last year our church went went through a terrible time of internal conflict. And that's the thing that really broke my heart and tore our church apart. Many people left, not because we're in the newspapers, but because there was an internal rift between our leaders. That's the greatest threat to your church. Pay attention to that. Be on guard against that. Wield the sword in the fight for truth. Second implication here is that the job of the pastor is to train God's people not to play nice church. We love playing nice church, don't we? Let's just all be happy and smile and pretend everything's good. C.S. Lewis, he spoke about the kindness that can kill a church In the problem of pain, he says, kindness cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided that it just escapes suffering. It is for people whom we care nothing about, kindness. He says, our desire for our children to be good outranks our desire for our children to be comfortable. It is the indifferent parent who kindly permits a child to play video games all day and eat junk. It is the loving parent who does the hard work of instilling in a child good work ethics. The parents who love those who want their children to become all they were created to be speaks the truth to them, even when it hurts, even as it's a sword piercing their soul. You you and I, we are willing to put our children through temporary discomfort to challenge their ideas of what they need in order to be happy. And yet often we're not willing to do that for the people in our churches. That's the kindness that kills churches. God is love, but he wields a sword which is sharp 
It pricks our conscience. It wounds our pride. It pierces our defenses. It lays bare our sin and need. It kills all our false ideas about God with its skillful thrust. It hurts. It's his weapon, and we should use it to defeat compromise in our own lives, in our church. Right now, it wounds in order to heal. There will come a day, though, where if it hasn't healed, it will destroy. There is a niceness which has the possibility of killing your church, a kindness. That's the second thing. The job of a pastor is to create a culture where church just isn't nice. It's loving. It's truthful. Thirdly, and yet we must speak the truth in love, mustn't we? There are some who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold the truth, but sometimes they're conspicuously lacking in love. When they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles begin to flex, and the rage of battle inflames their eyes. They seem nothing more than to enjoy a fight. And then there's others who make the opposite mistake. They're determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared to even sacrifice the truth. John Stott, he says famously, truth becomes hard. Truth becomes hard if it isn't sweetened and softened by love. But love without truth becomes soft if it isn't strengthened by truth. Truth becomes hard if not softened by love, love becomes soft if it isn't strengthened by truth. But I think Stott is actually almost at a point of a false dichotomy there because speaking the truth is a loving action, isn't it? The problem with those who are timid and shy and who fear speaking the truth is not they love people too much, it's that they love people too little. That's the reason we don't speak the truth to people. It's not that we're scared, ashamed. It's that we just don't love people. You can be the shyest person in the world and be as bold as an animal because you love people. In high school, I hated public speaking. I remember year 10 public. I couldn't do it. I was trembling. I remember the first couple of sermons I was giving. I was a mess. I couldn't deal with the, with the fear in my heart. I remember one moment I stood up and I thought to myself, where would I rather be right now than to be feeding God's people with his words? I love them. They need this. And you know what? That love drove out all the fear in my life. I am shy. I hate large groups. But it's love for people. That's what makes you speak. We speak the truth. The reasons we don't speak the truth is because we fear what we will look like. We'll look stupid. We'll, be, we'll enter conflict. We'll be hated. We'll lose a friendship. That's not loving. That's selfish. The reason we don't speak the truth is not because we love people too much and we somehow need to balance these two things up. It's actually because we don't love people enough. We must speak the truth in love. Some of you, you're just rude. You're jerks. And you need to learn to speak the truth in love. But you must speak the truth, otherwise you're not loving people. Fourthly, there will be times when your friends will say you are fighting against 10,000 swords that don't exist. Do you know what I mean? I remember reading this chapter in uh, Dallimore's book on Spurgeon. And to be honest, I know this is a little bit of a heretical thing to say. I found it pretty boring. I wasn't a big fan until I got to chapter 19. I just felt like he just he loved Charles Spurgeon too much. Everything he did was great. And then we got to chapter 19, and Spurgeon does do everything right in chapter 19. But he shows the conflict at work in church life. And this is what I wrote. I circled, you can see this, big circle, by far the best chapter. Just read this chapter, it's amazing. This is what I wrote, this chapter, it chronicles Spur Spurgeon's reluctant yet defiant protest of liberalism in the Baptist Union and how good evangelical men refused to see the danger and they thought that Spurgeon was merely quarreling. Let me read to you a couple of passages in this. 
quoting Spurgeon, a new religion has been, has been originated which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits that were erected for gospel preaching. He says the atonement is scouted. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Ghost is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into a fiction and the resurrection into a myth. He goes on, let each believer judge for himself, but for our part we have put on fresh, a uh, few fresh bolts on our door. We're keeping Satan out of our house. He continues, uh, he continues, he writes a friend to the head of the Baptist Union saying, dear friend, he is just such a, a lovely man, Spurgeon, dear friend, you hear the, the truth in love here? Dear friend, I beg you, to imi- I beg to imitate to you as the secretary of the Baptist Union that I must withdraw from the society. I do this with the utmost regret. He continues in another letter. He says, oh, it pains me unspeakably to see, uh, to see this happen. Very few Christians saw the compromise that was happening in the Baptist Union. He stood his ground, and in the end, they just say, uh, they end up saying that he was fighting against 10,000 swords that didn't exist. That Spurgeon, you're just a warmonger. You just want to fight. You're being too harsh. There's no love in you. And yet time has proven that he was right and the church had compromised. Let me apply this a little bit more locally. Broughton Knox's biography, I read that last year. He was the principal of Moore College and George Whitfield College in uh, South Africa. I remember reading through it. His life in Sydney, it was just one of conflict after conflict, and he kept fighting the board of War College to buy property because of his vision to grow that college as a centre of Bible teaching in our diocese. Full of conflict in Sydney, theological conflict, the lot. And then he goes to George Whitfield College, has a really peaceful time over there, and the biographer at the end of the chapter on George Whitfield College, she says this was the crowning glory of of uh, Broughton Knox's ministry. And I thought, what? Just because he had no conflict over there? For me, the crowning glory of his ministry was the stake he put in the ground in Sydney, that he was fighting for the truth of the gospel. That's the crowning glory of his ministry. Don't be, don't be deceived by those who would tell you that conflict is an ungodly thing to experience. You know, I remember Philip Jensen, uh, I, I, I think I probably became a Christian at mid-year conference uh, in the uh, early days, and I remember a couple of years ago I was at ministry training and development, and there Philip is, and I just thought he'd become a grumpy old man. He's preaching against raising hands in worship. I'm like, Philip, like, you've got to be kidding, right? The posture of our heart is expressed by our physical posture. When I preach, I don't just... Stand here and look at my page and hope you're moved by it. I move. And as I'm singing to him, I move. The posture of my heart is reflected by the posture of, is reflecting the posture. I'm not telling you you should do that. I'm just saying this is where I'm at. I remember hearing Philip going, oh, you're such a grumpy old man. And maybe he is, right? He probably is. (laughs) But you know what he is? He's a man concerned for the truth of the gospel. And he has fought for the truth of the gospel his whole life. And he sees the little trajectories that take us off and away from the gospel. You know, I think he's wrong on that point. But gee, I'm glad he's fighting against compromise. We must not think that where there is conflict, there is ungodly. There will be times when good evangelical brothers of yours will say to you, Toby, you're fighting against 10,000 swords that don't really exist. I think our example is to be Phineas. Do you remember what happens after the Balaam incident? The people sleep uh, with the women of Moab and uh, and God sends this plague. 24,000 of them die. And into the camp, as the people are mourning the death of their brothers, sisters, mums and dads because of the immorality that has swept through camp, There's this brazen, willful, defiant Israelite 
and he brings into the camp a Midian woman into his tent and he sleeps with her. Moses does nothing. None of the people do nothing. And up rises this young priest called Phineas who takes a spear and he stabs that Israelite man through the guts and into the woman. Incredible. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I think there you have a man who is passionate about the glory of God. He is zealous for the honor of Jesus' name. And you and I, we don't pick up spears anymore, do we? But you must pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and slay compromise in your churches. Have the same attitude of Phineas. I mean, Philip Jensen, he just is a modern-day Phineas, isn't he? He's kind of awkward, he's a little bit weird, but gee, I'm glad, <laughs> gee, I'm glad he's fighting. Finally, and I've gone way over time and I'm going to keep going. Uh, I wa- <laughs> Come to Vine Church. Uh, this is what happens. I, I want re- wa- Final thing I want to do with you is just lift your eyes to see the reward you will get if you stay true to Jesus. Come down to verse 17. He says, Jesus says, his last words I want you to hear from me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him the white stone with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, to be honest, I don't really know what either of these are. I'm guessing at this point, but I'm trying to apply this to you, so, so cut me uh, some slack. Uh, but do wield the sword of the Spirit after this, this sermon, okay? The manna, you know, we do know what the manna is. It was the bread of God that came down from heaven to feed the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness experience of those 40 years. It's called the, the bread of angels. It's sweet, completely satisfying, but it was more than food. It, it, it was a symbol of the way God provided for them through the tough times of their wandering. The hidden manna is Jesus himself. If you are faithful to me, Jesus says, in the tough places, I will come to you, provide for you, feed you, and satisfy you. You'll know the satisfaction of my presence, the sweetness of my love, if you stay true. Stay true. And you'll receive the desires of your heart. He won't leave you. Stay true. He will give some of the hidden manna. And the white stone, and no one's sure what this is. The commentators like list 12 options, and, uh, and I don't really know what it is either. But here's one of the options. I don't think it is what it is, but I think it's helpful for understanding possibly uh, uh, some of the significance of what it means. One of the options is that it could be the small stones which were used in the ancient world as tokens and tickets of admission into the public festivals. The Christians in this city, they'd received one, and they weren't giving it up. They wanted in to those subgroups in the city. They wanted the acceptance, the love of their city. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you stay true to me, you're going to lose your, your stones that grant you entrance. Your name is going to be tarred. People will hate you. You'll no longer be able to get into the places you used to be able to get into. But you know what? You'll have the white stone which will grant you entrance into the greatest feast you will ever experience. Hold on. You'll be known by heaven itself. This, na- this stone, it's got a name on it, which only the one who receives it know. The city you're in, you may lose the respect of your neighbors staying true to Jesus and not compromising. They may ostracize you. They may shame you. you may re- but you will receive the white stone on which is your name. In staying true to Jesus, you'll be known by heaven. It's a name only known to you. Now, my name's Toby. You know me as Toby, but my mother and my wife sometimes call me Tobias. And you know what that name is? It is full of sweet intimacy, that they know me and they love me. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's got a name for you which only you and him will know, and it's written on a stone which will grant you entrance into heaven. Don't fear losing the respect of our world. Fear losing the white stone which your name is on. If you keep your heart from the corrupting influence of the world, you will enjoy intimacy with him. When you're tempted to compromise, it's because you've forgotten 
the hidden manna, the white stone, those things give you courage and confidence. You don't need the love of the world if you have the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me come back to this guy, Kent Dobson, uh, who kind of sounds like you know, a modern-day uh, Magellan. Magellan. And I think his whole story is so disconcerting because there are shepherds around our world venturing into an unsure world of faithfulness to Christ at the risk of their very own lives. It's difficult to hear a shepherd of the church spin his actions as brave and noble when he's hiking up his tunic and making for the hills and leaving the sheep in his pasture hungry and at the threat of the wolves. You know, while our brothers and sisters in the majority world continue to meet in caves and barns in the face of imminent danger, many that are called to be shepherds of God's flock lack the courage to stand between the sheep and the wolf, defending them with the truth, which is the sword of the Spirit. These days, the real adventurers are those who set sail for the risky land of Christian orthodoxy. Friends, that's what we're on about. We are the true journeyers. We are the true adventurers. We are risking our lives for the sake of the truth of the gospel. The real brave men and women in our world are those who stand for the truth in the face of compromise and opposition, even to the point of death, because they love God and they love his people. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for, for having these, your words, carried to us by the Holy Spirit over these couple of days. We thank you for reminding us that we are facing a world which hates you and hates, will hate us, that there will be suffering involved. Father, that our greatest threat is not actually that It's our own compromise in our lives and in our churches. Help us to stand with the sword of the Spirit, but with a heart of love, a great and deep love for you, Lord Jesus Christ, and a love for the sheep you've entrusted to our care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.